sin, we have to resist the law of God. And then the actual sin is the fruit of our rebellion. It's that thing that now manifests. Okay? So it's not just about going out and committing a sin. It's actually giving expression to rebellion. All right? Uh, I hope that you just follow me. Because I don't think we like to connect sin with rebellion. We rather connect it with weakness. Weakness of character, weakness of persuasion, weakness of choice. But the underlying factor is the powers of rebellion. Okay, so today we're going to talk about moving from rebellion to salvation. And we're dealing with our soul. So what happens when we are born from above? We have to ask this question because it's vital uh, in the uh, backdrop of how salvation is presented at large in the church today. Would you agree with me? Um, it's made less than what it's supposed to be. Firstly, our spirit is made alive. Do you agree with that? The book of Ezekiel, God says, I will give them a new spirit and a new heart. Right? So God makes our spirit alive, which means I am able now to commune with God, and God is in a greater position to commune with me. In the past, God had to commune with me through the medium of the Word and the Holy Spirit. Now He still has those tools, but He can also communicate with me directly, spirit to spirit, because my spirit has been made alive. Okay? And I no longer am locked in to my senses. Because previously, I had to feel my way through life. Because my spirit was dead, I was just given to my soul, which is my will, my emotions, and my intellect. And beyond that, I could feel my way through smell, taste, sight, my auditory ability, and my feelings. What else did I leave out? Okay, your five senses, all right? Unless you're a woman, you have a sixth sense. <laughs> That's supposed to be funny. All right. <clears throat> so, um, I am now transcending these limitations, and I'm becoming a spiritual being. I was a spiritual being before, but now my spirit is made alive, and I'm able to commune with God. So, you can see that's a tremendous upgrade. Do you agree with me? It's not just a two-minute prayer thing. It's much bigger than that. All right? So Paul, um, we've become alive in spirit in Christ, of course. And then Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love which he, with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God, rich in mercy, motivated by grace, okay, comes to my life and do something powerful to my spirit. My spirit died in Adam. It's now made alive in Christ. And now I have the potential and the power engineered by the grace of God 
to begin the journey back to God. Okay? The problem is, to a large extent, the church does not minister the concept of a journey back to God. It ministers the concept that at the point of my salvation, I have everything, I've become everything that I will ever be, and all I have to do is maintain the status quo until Jesus comes. That's not what the Scriptures teach. They teach more than that. Okay? So I have to then understand that my conversion is the activation point. It's the place where my spirit is made alive, and now I can act upon the potential to begin a journey back to God. Let me give you this backdrop. When God gave the tabernacle of Moses to him, he said to him that it would be a temporary instrument for his people to come back into relationship with him. Okay? Because they were his covenant people, remember? They didn't become his covenant people when they left Egypt. They were already his people. You know that from the study we've done in the past. And so, leaving Egypt was not making them the people of God. Leaving Egypt was bringing them into closer relationship with him. And the tabernacle would be an instrument through which they would be able to establish, ratify, build upon that relationship. All right? So they would have the outer core dimension, the altar and the laver, which would reintroduce them to God, as we would have the cross and baptism to reintroduce us back to God, because no man can come to the Father unless the Father calls him. We have to rethink our evangelism. Okay? It's critical to preach the gospel of Christ to the world. It's very, very important. However, the book of Acts, I think chapter 3 says, those who were appointed unto eternal life responded to the gospel. Okay, now that sounds like hyper-Calvinism. Right? The Calvinists believe that unless God draws you, there's no way that you can respond to Him in salvation, even if you feel like it. That is the truth. Because repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is not something that I can conjure up in myself and say, today is a good day, I'm going to repent. No, the Holy Spirit has to engineer repentance in me because it begins with God. And it comes into fruition in God. Okay? I can't just flip a coin as an unbeliever and say, I'm going to get saved today. Because the, what is known as the provenient work of the Holy Spirit begins long before we respond to God. As a child, I remember I was six years old when I knew that God has called me to the ministry. I was 16 when I responded to the gospel. I required 10 years to mature in my understanding. The first time someone presented the gospel to me, I responded to the Lord. Because in my spirit, I knew this is what I was designed for. Okay? So it's important for us to know, I have to preach the gospel into that arena, but those who are appointed unto eternal life will respond to it. That's why it's vital for us to know the one plants the seed, another one waters, God gives growth.
in this whole process. That's why it's vital for us throughout the day to plant seeds. Do you agree with me? Okay. Excuse me. Jesus said there'd be problem. So it's vital for us to recognize then that the way in which salvation has been presented to us is not a complete picture. All right? There's a bigger picture. Um, let me infuse this. Paul talks about running a race, the potential of being disqualified in the race. Okay? Do you agree with me? In other words, that even though I received life in my spirit, my soul can still be condemned. The Bible says, those of us who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, having trampled underfoot His blood, with what can God redeem us a second time? He says nothing. Because that which God has given, we have trampled underfoot. Have you noticed someone that has fallen from grace, oftentimes how hard it is for them to come back? I have a man that I've discipled for a number of years that has fallen from grace, and um, he's a very gifted musician, and, and he has just gone to the dogs. No matter how much love, care, nurturing, provision, protection, counsel you give him, he just cannot come back to the place that he has fallen from. You know, sometimes after a counseling session, he would go out and he would do even worse things. You know, because he's trampled the blood underfoot. But more than that, he's a Romans 1 person. Having known God, he didn't honor him as God. He was frivolous in his approach, even when he was in church. He didn't honor him as God. He held him as he was a buddy, you know, and he could just handle him the way that he likes. And, and in the process, the Bible says God gives them over to the desires of their soul. If that's what you want, well, then go for it. Destroy yourself. You know. All right. So God made us alive. And that's not all that he did. Do you agree? He resurrected us and he enthroned us. That's all in the same passage. All right? That's why in baptism we identify with the death, the burial of Christ. And as we emerge out of the waters, we identify with his resurrection. Okay? And then he also seats us or enthrones us with Christ in heavenly places. That's why we are a very special people. We are both in earth and in heaven at the same time. All right? That's why through prayer, praise, worship, intercession, we ascend into the heavens. And we walk on earth. Remember Jacob's ladder? Jacob saw a company of people ascending and descending. And so in our relationship with Him, in our intimacy and fellowship with Him, we ascend into His very presence. That's why Paul said in one of my times that I ascended into the heavens, I heard things spoken in the triune God that's not lawful for a man to repeat. 
so I'm not going to talk about those things. But I heard God speak things in that dimension that I will just keep to myself. You know? And it's an incredible thing because we are seated on His throne with Him in Christ. Isn't that an incredible thing? God has already positioned us for rulership in Christ. And He's looking for us to exert that dominion in Him from that position. Amen? Bless the Lord. All of that is past then, so if we can accept it spiritually, we are seated with Him on the throne. But the thing that I want to emphasize now is we've been made alive. Amen? Bless the Lord. The soul then, through repentance, is reconciled with God. My spirit is made alive. My soul is being reconciled with God. Because remember, my soul was the rebel. It was freely rebelling against God. That is, my will, my emotions, my intellect was demonstrating its disapproval of God through fruits of sin. You know? And now God is going to help me bring my soul into reconciliation with Him. Because I cannot leave it to roam freely, rebelling against God, while my spirit now is made alive. I'm able to access God. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places, identified with Him in resurrection. But my soul, which keeps my body hostage, wants me to do things that my spirit doesn't approve of. Okay, so we've got to reconcile. Because remember Psalm 133. Where brethren dwell together in harmony, there God commands His blessing. So, don't think of the brethren in the classroom environment now. Think of these three brethren, spirit, soul, and body. They have to dwell together in harmony in order for God to command His blessing. Because if my spirit wants one thing, my soul wants another thing, my body is in conflict, in fact, it's in trepidation. It doesn't know who to obey. So there's chaos in my being. God cannot put His blessing upon that. I've got to become a congruent person where my spirit and soul desires the same thing and it becomes an expression in my body. It's very important to emphasize repentance. I do believe that in the modern church we do not put sufficient emphasis on repentance. Sometimes when you speak about to people that are in Christ about repentance, they become offended. I tell you, I repented when I was a sinner. I did that already. How can you talk to me again about repentance? You know, that's behind me. You know, all I need now is confession and forgiveness. To confess means to admit that you're wrong. It doesn't mean you're going to change it. The Bible does not require of us simply to admit that we are wrong. That's what the priest requires in the Roman Catholic Church. To confess, you know. I believe it's a good starting point to confess because you admit that something is wrong, but then beyond that you have to repent. 
Repent means to change your mind. It means to go into a different direction. Okay? And to me, the example of repentance is the Apostle Paul. He says, I repent daily. So Paul, it seems like he had a little problem. Let's go to Romans 7, and he says, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. So the brother has a problem. He's still living in sin. <laughs> no, I don't think so. He answers the question in chapter 8, I think. He says, shall I remain in sin? He says, no, God forbid that I do that. Okay? But he's very clear that we need to understand that repenting, what Paul is saying is, as soon as the Word, as soon as the Holy Spirit, as soon as my fellowship with brethren brings me to an understanding that my life is malaligned, out of sync with heaven, I repent from that posture and I take on the accurate or more proper posture so that my life can be aligned with heaven. You know? And if that is a, I believe that is a position each one of us should take on uh, as a lifestyle. Because if you live out of that perception, it would not be difficult to admit when you are wrong. You know? I have seen people uh, treat the idea of admitting that they are wrong like, like they have to die. You know? It's like death that they're facing when they have to admit that they're wrong. That normally is rooted in an inaccurate uh, identity in Christ. You know, when I can't admit that I'm wrong... It means I'm struggling with rejection. I'm struggling with um, a poor self-acceptance and self-image. So if I'm admitting that I'm wrong, it's a very terrible thing for me because it, it's bad on my personality or my person. You know? But if you are rooted in Christ and you understand that your life is in Him and you are confident with what you, where you've come in the Lord up till now, it's not such a hard thing to say to someone, you know what? I think I'm wrong. Can you forgive me? Please, I ask that you forgive me because um, I have a wrong posture in this. You know, and it's not so hard. It becomes a lifestyle. And before you even think it's out of your mouth and you say, please, because I want to treasure my relationship with you and with the Lord. I always tell people, I don't have the luxury to live um, out of... Um, um, the idea of not being in good relationship with people. So I try and settle things immediately or as soon as possible because the calling of God upon my life requires of me to walk in accuracy with God. I don't have the luxury to still... I always say I don't take prisoners. You know, I don't want nobody in a prison cell that I go and beat up at night. I want to live in a good relationship with God and with His creation. However, a rebel cannot be reconciled to God as long as he or she remains a rebel. Now remember, we're talking about someone born from above. Spirit is made alive unto God, but the soul is running rampant, still rebellious against the Lord, um, because they have not yet encountered the Lordship of Christ. So one of the things that are involved in salvation is that we lay down our rebellion. 
and that's not really preached when we want, because we are so desperate to have numbers responding to our message that we won't tell them that unless you give up on your rebellion, you're not going to be a good candidate of being a follower of Christ. You know, you must be willing to do that um, in order to follow Him. Lots of people who claim to be born again and saved have, in actual fact, never renounced their rebellion. How do I know this? 35 years in the church. Talking to some believers is like touching a live wire. Shocks go through your body. They are so alive, they are certainly not dead in Christ. The reactions, the responses, the expressions of their verbal abuse, certainly that doesn't come from a soul that has given up on being rebellious against Christ and against others. How do I know? Secondly, I see how people respond to leaders. Okay? The way I respond to my leader is the way I respond to Christ. Because my leader is the ambassador of Christ to my life. You know? So how I handle the person, Jesus said the same. If they reject you, they reject me. You know? Because I've sent you to them. And so it's very clear in modern church that people don't see the need to relinquish this position of rebellion. Right? Because my spirit is made alive. I can pray, I can praise, I can worship, I can sing, I can even swing from the chandeliers now and then. I can do cartwheels. Look, I can speak in tongues. Watch me. I can interpret tongues. I can even prophesy. Why do I have to give up on rebellion? Because I like to be rebellious. And I'm also enjoying the work of the Holy Spirit. God must be approving of me. Look, God is using me. What's wrong with you? Why can't you be cool like God? You know? God loves me. You just want to put me down. All right? But what they don't understand is something has slipped through the cracks. They have missed a part of the developmental phase of coming into Christ, and that is giving up on rebellion. We'll see what the Scripture says. So there's an outward form of Christianity, but the inner reality is not there. Let's look at Romans chapter 5 for a moment. It says 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember... Paul, in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, um, took the approach of an attorney. He's building a case. In verse 23 of chapter 3, he passes the judgment. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Okay, he's built the case up from Romans chapter 1, where he's made every living creature under the heaven and the sun guilty of sin. Then he takes the next three chapters of Romans, and he explains how it can be undone. 6.23, what does it say? Romans 6.23. The way.
wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen? So it takes the next three chapters to show us how to undo it, summarize one to three again by the wages, but then telling us the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. Okay? So here we find in 5.1, he says that we have been justified by faith. The word justified, it gives the inc inclination there that we have been made just, just as though we never sinned, all right? Justified by faith, and we have peace. I want you to focus on the word peace because the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ introduced into the concept of salvation peace because we were in enmity with God. Remember, our sin is the demonstration of our rebellion. And now in Christ, that power of that sin has been reduced and destroyed. And so technically, we should lose the powers to be rebellious. And so that we now become coming to peace with God. I see a peace treaty. The peace treaty is signed in the blood of Christ. Right, there's a treaty. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have been reconciled with God. And in bookkeeping, that's a terminology used when the books balance. You know, bookkeepers say, I cannot reconcile the books. Either there's an invoice missing, or there's a banking slip missing, or something is missing. The books doesn't balance. Paul says the books balance. We've been reconciled with God in Christ. Christ is that entity that paid the price for the sin of humanity, and now if you bring him into the equation, the books balance. All right? We have been reconciled with God in Christ. All right? So as far as God is concerned, he's no longer at war with any person who is in Christ. All right? That's why the Bible says we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, which means to introduce man to the provision of God in Christ, that they also may enjoy the peace with God. That's why I told you before, we have an excellent message. We can just ask people, do you know that God has forgiven you in Christ? And the second question, would you receive His forgiveness? Because we have the message of reconciliation, introducing man to the provision of God in Christ. All right. So that's a tremendous thing we need to be mindful of, is the concept of peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we were at war with God, now we've been justified by faith, and we have peace with God. And then in verse 11 it says, And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Peace with God. And now the book's balance. We've now been made children of God. Those who've been rebellious against Him, angry, mad, stuck raving mad, okay, have come into relationship with God in Christ, and now we have peace with Him, and we've been reconciled with Him. I want you to understand the instruments of our salvation because God wants to remove from us the inherent 
power to rebel against him. All right? But it's not going to happen by itself. You must be willing to give it up. You must be willing to stop fueling the power of rebellion in your soul. That's a choice. So we were at war with God, but we have been reconciled with Him. What then happens to the body through salvation? Firstly, it becomes a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's very important because a lot of believers don't realize that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Do you agree with me? The Apostle Paul says, Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I've discovered that every time the Bible says, Know ye not, that we don't know. because he's drawing our attention to the fact that we have now become the temple of the Holy Spirit, our body. And um, how we treat our body in, in ev is an evidence of what we think of our salvation. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Do you not know, and I see that's half a dozen times, as I said, it's my observation that we don't know. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. All right? Spirit is made alive. Soul is being led to give up the powers of rebellion. Body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit because it's in this physical body that we carry this treasure that God wants to bring to completion called a son of God. And uh, in that process of development, uh, a few weeks ago, I decided that I was going to invade cyberspace and ask a question. You know, so I wrote a question on Facebook. I said, is there anybody out there in cyber world who can answer my question for me, please? And this is the question. What is the ultimate intent of God for the salvation of men? And there was silence in the heavens and on earth. Now, I, I followed it up with a statement. It must, is it possible that it can be more than saving me from hell and taking me to heaven? And there was silence. The jury is still out on that one. Because the larger proportion of the church believes the ultimate intent of God is simply to save man from hell and take man to heaven. And in between, for man to attend church services. That's not what the Bible teaches. Even though all of those things are relevant, there is more to our salvation than that. So let's sum up what happens at salvation. Firstly, our spirit is made alive. Secondly, our soul is reconciled with God. And thirdly, our body is made a temple of the Holy Spirit and becomes eligible for the first resurrection. Philippians 3, 10 and 11, Paul says that our body is made eligible for the first resurrection, and that's the goal of the Christian life. I think by now you should know that the terminology used by Paul here is not um, needs to be understood like this. He talks about, in, in the Greek, about the out-resurrection. Okay? 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, around verses 40 onwards to 50 somewhere, it talks about the resurrection of the believer's life, physical body. It talks about the transformation of that body. Okay? But then he makes a statement in one of the verses. He says, everyone is, will be resurrected according to their own seniority. Now that poses a problem. Because the church preaches a gospel of great generalities. Everybody is equal before God. That's not the Bible, what the Bible teaches me. The Bible teaches me that God relates with every person on a personal level where they act in their journey with Him. Let me give you a practical example. There was 120 disciples following the Lord Jesus. Is that right? Out of the 120, He chose 12 to be His apostles. Out of the 120, there were 72 who had a level of readiness to be sent forth to preach the gospel into the cities. Is that right? Out of the 12, He had three. Peter, John, and James that were very intimate with him. It was their response to his life. Out of the three, there was one, John, called the Beloved, the one who was constantly laying his head on the breast of the Lord, so in love with Jesus. All right? So there you can see that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, related differently to every person depending on how they respond to him. The idea of equality is a sociological mishappening. Because in the concept of, of teaching socialism, which is an alternative political system, the idea is to make everyone equal. Um, that's not a biblical model. Everyone is not equal. God relates to every person on the merits of of their relationship with Him. Okay? So do not preach the gospel uh, of great generalities. It's not a gospel that the Bible teaches. Alright? Um, so in the resurrection even, everyone is going to be resurrected within their own order. Paul says, I pray, I trust, I believe, I hope that I will attain to the first resurrection. Because the first resurrection is the resurrection of those who will rule with Christ in His kingdom. The others will wait. May God grant me grace that I don't have to wait. <laughs> it says there, that I may know Him, that is Jesus, and the power of His resurrection... And the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, and that's the out-resurrection he's referring to in that passage. So the word used means out-resurrection, as I said earlier. It's not the final, the complete resurrection. He says, my purpose is to live in such a way that I may qualify. And I believe that we can't take it for granted. It depends on how we live. So what are the functions of these three elements? Firstly, my soul, rather my spirit. My spirit is capable of direct communion with God and worship. 
Okay? It's our spirit that connects with God who is spirit. Amen? It's this dialogue. Then we have a language of the spirit in which we can communicate spiritual ideas and concepts and concerns with God. Even when our mind is unfruitful, our spirit is fruitful in communicating, dialoguing with God. It's the same person, Paul says, I pray more in tongues than all of you put together. Because he's learned how to pray in the Holy Spirit throughout the day. Okay, even when you're doing something else, you don't need your faculty of your mind when you're praying in the Holy Spirit. You can multitask. You can work on your computer. You can drive your car. You can do your shopping and pray in the Holy Spirit at the same time. All right. And uh, it's a wonderful thing. I've seen sometimes when I do business, I'm praying in the Holy Spirit. My spirit is so alert. I see things that I'm aware of, problems I would have uh, probably engaged in or things that I can avoid because my spirit is constantly in communion with God. But at the same time, it's sending signals to my soul to make good choices in the process. That's the part of man that originates from God. Remember, as we said last night, Adam became a living soul when God placed his pneuma, his breath, inside of Adam. Right, they became so that part comes from God, spirit, and so that is the part that is able to commune with God and have fellowship with God. First Corinthians six seventeen, it's a very important verse. It says, But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. All right. And you know the analogy that he's using? Uh, so it'll be completely wrong to say that he's one soul with the Lord. It's one spirit, all right? Because my soul, my will, and my emotions, my intellect does not have the capability in its beginning phases of my walk with God to make all the correct choices, all right? But my spirit, which is born from above, is able to ascend and communicate and have fellowship with God um, and that's why sometimes you will agree with me that you get a little confused because you have this powerful encounter with God uh, and you really enjoy His presence. And you've, if you've ministered, you've come out as tremendous anointing of the Holy Spirit. And then your soul says something to you that you think, dear God, where did that come from? You know, I'm completely disgusted by the idea. Uh, but your soul, the elements of the soul that is not yet completely under the Lordship of Christ will suggest things to us uh, which we then have to, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, taking every thought captive, bringing it to the subjection of the revealed knowledge of Christ's desires for my life. Okay? That's why the Word has to be in my mind, in my soul, in my spirit, because I need the Word as a standard, so when the thought comes, I say, come over here, let me bring you under Christ, because I have revealed knowledge of Christ's desires for my life, 
and you don't fit the package, so submit under that. Okay, and uh, that's an ongoing task. I don't know about you, but um, there are times when I have plain sailing, and then suddenly I find that something happens to me. I said, "Dear God, where did that idea come from?" Because it's fiery darts that the enemy throw at us. Okay, some of it's a fiery darts. Some of it is latent inaccuracies in our soul. Something we neglected to deal with. And under the correct conditions, it surfaces. Okay? So when that happens, take a moment, make a note in your journal, and say to yourself, something to yourself, say, Something like this, I didn't know you were still there. <laughs> we need to deal with you. All right. If you take that in context, I'm talking about the fact um, that our spirit is one with the Lord. Paul is talking about a man being joined to a prostitute. Have you seen that in 1 Corinthians 6? He's using an analogy, a very vivid analogy, because the Corinthians were very carnal people. You know, so here's an example. He says, a man being joined to a prostitute becomes one with her. So in the same way, I want you to understand when you are joined with Christ, you are one with him. He's using a very strong analogy in that, but his hearers understood what he was saying because um, these people needed a lot of prayer and help. So one spirit... Um, it's only the spirit that can be united with God. The soul cannot and the body cannot. We'll see from Scripture later on. Okay? So I want you to understand something. The spirit and the spirit alone, I believe, is capable of true worship. Alright? And I want to touch something here because a lot of what we have in church today that we pass on as worship is not worship. Okay. It's praise, high praise. It can be um, even historical songs. Worship is the spirit of man communing with God who is spirit, celebrating him and having direct communion with him. Praise is talking about God to other believers. For example, the song, look what the Lord has done. I'm not singing that to the Lord. I'm singing it to the body, to the church. I'm bearing testimony of what God has done. So my simple analysis of the difference between praise and worship is this. Praise is singing about God. Worship is singing to God. Okay. So if you make that simple delineation, when you gather... Determine, are we, are we singing to the Lord or are we singing about the Lord? Much of the singing in church is about the Lord. And you don't need your spirit. You sing about the Lord with your soul. Okay? I want you to understand. You need your will, your emotions, and your intellect to praise. Praise is an important component. But unfortunately... Most everything we do is praise. Okay? 
and we don't. And if the worship leader goes into worship, about 66% of the congregation falls back in their participation. Even more than that. Because the larger component of the church do not have a spiritual relationship with God. And for that reason, many worship leaders become the solution. So they rather do not worship God because they want the participation of the people. So they stay in praise. Okay. So those who are grown in the Lord very seldom worship the Lord in church gatherings. They worship Him at home. Because we don't have a worship meeting. We have a praise meeting. Because of this very thing, you need to understand it's only your spirit that can worship God. And your, whole, your spirit, enabled by the Holy Spirit, communes with God in worship. All right. And so, um, unless that happens, you know, I preach in a lot of places. And to a large extent, I very seldom participate in, in what they call worship. I would be in the meeting, and I would listen to the songs and say, okay, I can't sing some of these songs. So what do I do? I simply worship the Lord and the Holy Spirit. Where they sing words, I just worship the Lord and the Holy Spirit the whole time. I have my own meeting inside the meeting. All right? Now and then there's some songs that I can join in and I sing heartily together with the church and I say, oh, I can't sing that verse. Because it cuts across my theology. Okay? And then I leave that verse out and I just sing in the Holy Spirit. And there are even times when I just sit down in the meeting until it's time for me to speak. Because I give up. <laughs> We're not going anywhere in this meeting. You know, in terms of the worship. Okay. I've actually, when I was pastoring, I would call the worship leader on a Sunday morning to my office. I said, so what did the Lord give you for us to sing in this meeting? And they would list the songs. I said, no, you didn't listen to the same God I was in fellowship with. You pulled these songs out of your intellect or out of your repertoire. Well, let me tell you what God has given me to speak in this meeting. And I would tell them an outline. I said, now, where are the songs that fit into this? I said, now, sing that song, sing that one, and that's all you need to do this morning. Leave the rest. Yeah. And, and then they go and they sing those songs. And sometimes God, by His grace, come and anoint those songs and bless them. And it becomes something that we can build out of into the word and sometimes it doesn't happen times I say nothing I call them to my office after the meeting and I say so what happened this morning you were going to Paul and I was going to Cape Town are we in the same meeting you know is the Holy Spirit confused you know and if I've spoken to them for a few times now it's time to embarrass them publicly so in the midst of the worship, I walk up to the podium and I say, Brethren, this is not where God wants to go in this meeting. 
and I introduce a song that I believe the Holy Spirit would give me, and let's tell. And by that time, the church says, "Dear God, we're so thankful we didn't go where they were going anyway," and they begin, <laughs> and they begin to worship together corporately. And I turn the meeting back to the worship team. You know, uh, I'll give you an example. One Sunday morning, <clears throat> I watched the worship leader breaking out in a sweat on the keyboard, playing, inspiring. And I asked the Lord, I put my antennas up in the meeting as I normally do, discerning what's going on, sending the direction of the wind. And I sensed that there was an obstruction in the meeting. I said, the Lord, what is it? He says, there are three witches in the meeting. A threefold cord is hardly broken. So I watched the worship. You know, I have a little bit of a, a naughty streak in me. So I thought, let me first enjoy the moment. So I watched the worship leader break out in a sweat. He can't get the meeting to go anywhere, nothing. The meeting is he's, he's bound up. They really spun him up well, these three witches. And so I stepped to the podium, and I began to lead war, warfare worship against this whole thing and began to break it down in the spirit realm. And then when the meeting, I believe, s settled, we began to minister the word. Now... One of those ladies actually gave her heart to the Lord and began to become a part of the church, but two of them left and they never came back. So I asked the worship leader after the meeting, I said, so what happened this morning? He says, dear God, I couldn't get the meeting to go anywhere. I said, can I tell you what is happening? He said, yes, please. I said, there were three witches in the meeting. He said, oh. I said, can I tell you something about your discernment? He says, yeah. That you can't even discern yourself out of a shoebox. I said, all you have is a bunch of songs to sing, but you can't sense the spiritual climate of the meeting. You're leaning too much on your talent. So get your walk with God in, in, in shape. That's the same man that I was spoken of earlier that has given himself completely to the world. But there were signals throughout the years that the Lord was giving him about changing his lifestyle. You know 1 John 4, what Jesus has said? He said, the hour is coming and now is that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such worship. Okay? It's only your spirit that can worship God. And you must give your spirit the liberty to worship the Lord under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And as you do that, you will find, and you're already doing it. It's just that I'm defining it. All right. Um, that you will see it will have tremendous um, implications in your life as you walk with the Lord. The spirit is the element which is capable of worship. The soul is capable of praise and thanksgiving. And only the Spirit, I believe, can offer to God the worship which is acceptable. From a pragmatic point of view, you know this is true. Okay, because if you lead worship, you know that um, there are only certain people in the congregation, even though everyone is born of the Spirit, that is able to worship God. These are the ones that have a spiritual relationship with God. And on a percentage basis, 
in a really spiritual church, around 25% of the congregation. You know, praise the whole, it's a praise party. You can let everybody praise. But just introduce worship. You see, they all. Some of them even sit down. Because that's not for them. Their spirit is not mature enough to commune with God. And we need to see that. Remember Hebrews 12, 15? See to it that no one in the midst um, frustrate the grace of God. A good leader take cognizance of who does not worship the Lord. Years ago, the church that I was a part of in Somerset West, the mature saints, we trained the saints in such a way that when it comes to worship time, when you see someone in the congregation do not worship the Lord, walk up to them. Put your arm around them and say, come on, let's worship the Lord. And for the five or ten or fifteen minutes, worship the Lord with them. Show them. Just softly worship with them. And if they get a breakthrough, just leave them. Let them worship the Lord. So the saints in the congregation were trained to look out during the worship who was not engaging the Lord in worship. And they would just automatically go to these people and just put their arm around them and say, come on, let's do this together. No condemnation. Because they understand it's something that they need to be trained into. Okay? And once they know how to do it, because in the church in Somerset West, we used to worship the Lord for about two hours on a Sunday morning. And it was just normal. It was waves of glory that comes over the meeting. It's waves of glory. And if you don't know how to worship the Lord, it's really not a time for you to be there because you feel, even though you are born of the Spirit, you feel you're not with it. You know? So we quickly engage the ones that were struggling to worship. And over a number of months or years, the whole congregation was able to worship the Lord. And uh, it's a good thing for you to look out in the church where you provide leadership to see who doesn't worship the Lord. And, uh, and remember, you don't want to be judgmental. You want to help. You know? And don't ask them what's wrong, because they will tell you a whole lot of stuff. You know? This is not a time, remember, faith to worship, faith for salvation. This is not a time to ask what's wrong. This is simply saying, let's worship the Lord. Not a time to do introspection or make an analysis of the thing because they can give you a lot of reasons why they don't want to worship the Lord, including the fact that you're there with them. <laughs> you know, so just simply say, come on, let's do this. We can do it together. So what happens to the soul? The soul is the decision-making element, and through regeneration, the soul is able to make right decisions. This is very important that you understand the state, because your soul is not your enemy. There are those who are teaching the idea that your soul must be completely dead in order for you to follow Christ. Um, I don't believe that. Even God have a soul. That's what the Bible teaches me. So, your soul is not supposed to be dead. Your soul is supposed to be consecrated. 
You need your will and your emotions and intellect. The Bible says you will serve the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength. Amen. So you will serve God with your soul, but your soul needs to be brought under the submission of Christ, under His Lordship. Amen. So it's very vital that through regeneration, your soul is able to make right decisions. All right? Because um, in following and obeying God, there will be times when you will have to make decisions with your regenerated mind. You're not always going to have a word from God to say what you have to do or a prophecy to tell you what to do. There's going to be times when you have to make decisions with your regenerated mind based on the revealed counsel of God for your life. Amen? So there comes in the importance of your soul under the Lordship of Christ where you're going to make decisions. All right? In walking with God. David said in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And he was in fact talking to his soul, is it right? What is he saying? A part of him was talking to his soul. It was his spirit talking to his soul. David in his spirit had a desire to bless God. But David understood, unless my soul is going to comply, nothing is going to happen. My soul must agree with my spirit. So David begins to speak to his soul. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. All right? So the soul has to respond. So his spirit sends the need to bless the Lord, but his spirit could not do it until his soul activated his body. In other words, my spirit wants to worship the Lord, or my spirit wants to pray, my spirit wants to intercede, but it has to be processed through my soul. My soul has to grant permission. Because it's going to happen in my body. Amen? I'll give you a classical example. It's a winter's morning. It's 5 a.m. The alarm has just gone off. It's time for prayer. You take your finger, you hold it outside the blanket, and you say to yourself, it's about 7.5 degrees centigrade. And you say to yourself, your body begins to talk. You're not doing this to me, are you? Are you attacking me? Don't you love me? Leave me under this feather blanket. Can't you speak with God from this posture? Just pray right here. Do you agree? So what happens? Okay, ambulance lady. Yeah. So what happens? Your spirit desires to be in prayer. Your soul has entered into the debate. And your body is saying, we're not getting out until you make a decision. We're just lying right here under this feather duvet with the electric blanket on, we're not doing anything. Finally, your soul says, we'll do it tomorrow. Your body says, I agree. 
your spirit says, no, I'm outnumbered. <laughs> Do you agree with me? Now, I know none of you ever have those problems. <laughs> you just jump up at five in the morning in winter, step into an ice cold shower like in the army, you know, and begin to pray on the Holy Ghost while that cold water falls on your body. <laughs> well, so the spirit in this present creation moves upon the body through the soul. Can you see that? The spirit in this present configuration of our being moves upon the body but through my soul. My soul has to grant permission for that to happen. Let's make a basic example. The soul is like the gear lever in your car. All right? You sit in the driver's seat, you switch on the engine, until you put the car in gear, you're not going anywhere. Can you see that example? You can have a V8 engine, 3.5 Chevy. You can rev it, vroom, you know, really rev it. The car tilts as you rev it. Until you put it in gear, it's going nowhere. It's just sitting in the parking bay, revving. Okay. So that's technically how we operate. Okay? You have this tremendous engine of your spirit, powerful engine, able to do exploits for God in your sports body. <laughs> but until you put it into gear, it's not doing anything. It's not going anywhere. Amen? You may have some of the most powerful godly desires for God and His kingdom, but until you put it into gear, it's going nowhere. It's just the desire. So the gear lever is the soul. The spirit is there, but it cannot move the car without the soul. So my purpose in all of this is to come to the place where we can distinguish between spirit and soul, and that's not easy. In fact, there's only... Excuse me, ma'am. Um, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, and of joints and marrow, and as discerner of thoughts and the intents of heart. I want you to understand something. The Bible says that it's only the word of God who can discern between the division of the soul and the spirit. Okay, it's very vital for us to understand that. The Word of God is the only instrument which is sensitive enough and sharp enough to penetrate, to divide between soul and spirit. In no other way can we understand the different functions of soul and spirit and the relationship between them except by the Word of God. You cannot rely on your own understanding or your own feelings. Uh, they are not reliable. Alright, why am I saying that? If you're going to learn how to discern... Uh, in situations, you will have to learn how to discern in the Word and by the Word. You don't discern what spirit is in operation through tradition, through your own experience, through accumulated knowledge, through customs and traditions. You've got to discern by the Word. 
okay? The word is the only reliable element that can discern between spirit and soul. It even knows the intentions of the heart of man, which means the origins. I have not even acted upon a desire in my heart, but the word already understands my desires. So you've got to be able to discern by the word. Now, when I was growing up in church, I heard a lot of people in church say, I'm discerning you. You know, I can understand you. Yeah, I tell you up in the geest. All right, did you let I good hear all? Okay. It's very vital that you exercise your ability to discern in the word, not in your emotions. It's not reliable. Not in your intellect. It's not complete. You can't trust it. Okay? Not even your experience of life and ministry can mislead you. It must be the word. It must be the foundation of, the, of that which you use to discern a situation. All right? Are you with me on that? Okay. To use the Word of God as a discerner, two conditions are set. Firstly, found in Hebrews 5, 13 and 14, where the writer is talking about the difference between mature and immature Christians. It says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the Word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Then he goes on to say, But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Alright, so for those who only partake of the milk of the word, they don't have what it takes to discern in the word. Alright, because their understanding of the intentions and the purposes of God is incomplete. And those who then are mature by reason of their use. This is vital. Being mature in the Lord is not sufficient. It is by reason of use. In other words, by practicing. Now let me give you an example of how I believe you ought to practice discernment in a meeting as a leader. After the meeting, the leader should come together for a cup of tea and ask yourself, what happened the last few hours. What happened in the meeting? Was the Holy Spirit able to accomplish His goal? What were the elements working against it? Where did we miss an opportunity to bring an adjustment in the gathering? What do you discern happened there? Why do I say that? Through practicing discernment, you sharpen your discernment, and also, you're building the team's trust in one another so that when one of the members of the leadership team steps forward in a gathering to make an adjustment, the others already understand where they come from because they've been working together in this environment for a while. Okay? I sometimes play a little game with my children because they're not children any longer. They're 
mature woman, when we drive home from a meeting, I say to them, so what happened there today? Tell me. I'll give you an example. Uh, a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, a year and a half ago, the girls came to us and said, Dad, we're going to a meeting this evening, uh, and then we're going to go out for coffee afterwards. I said, all right, enjoy yourself. They went to some church service somewhere. So after not too long, they were back home. So I said, so what happened? They said, we didn't feel that the meeting would be of any benefit to us. I said, what do you mean? Firstly, he said, we were in the worship gathering, but they weren't worshiping God. They were involved in some personal aggrandizement, and we just walked out, and we went to have coffee and came home. I said, okay, it seems like you're growing up in the Lord. You understand when things are not good for you, and you don't want to sit through the whole meeting, you know. Uh, but I was also making sure that they were not um, just adamant or insensitive or rude or anything. I said, no, Dad. I said, give me an example. I said, the songs they were singing, Dad, it was not bringing glory to the Lord. I said, okay, give me an example. And they told me, I said, all right, okay. I, I stand back. I stand corrected. You know, uh, you, you've got my, my, my blessing and what you've done. You know, I said, I would have joined you if I was there. <laughs> you know. So it's vital for us to test, even in our family life, when we come from meetings, Ask your spouse, so do you think the Lord reached his goal in this gathering today? You know, I asked my wife when I've ministered the word, I said, do you think God was in any way pleased with what has happened in the meeting today? Was there anything that should have gone differently? And you know, a woman that really loves you is able to speak the truth in love. <laughs> you know, my wife will tell me straight, she says, you missed it this morning, man. I said, what did I do wrong? He said, the first 20 minutes of the word, you were head on straight in what the Lord wanted to do. And then for some strange reason, you deviated on a path that was not the mind of Christ for the gathering. I said, but I thought it was needful to expand on that point. I said, don't agree with you. I said, okay. So I missed it, but I was okay for 20 minutes. <laughs> you know. You know, I may not even agree completely, but I've asked for the criticism or the input, you know, and so I value it. It's not a point, a place to pick a, fi a fight or to defend yourself. Don't ask for someone's input if you're immature. Be genuine in what you're asking because you may not receive what you're looking for. You may be looking for a compliment, and in the process, you're going to get something you don't want. All right. We've been practicing this for a long time in our family. When we drive home on a Sunday, I asked the girls when they were young, so what did the Lord minister to you in this gathering today? You know, what is there you need to carry forward with you in your walk with God? And uh, it's good to see how they participate, and also it helps you to understand whether they are paying attention in what they're doing in the gatherings. So discernment is not something that we can take for granted. It only comes by practice, and it, will only, it only comes as we take in the whole counsel of God through His Word. All right, you've got to discern the mind of Christ 
for the meeting. If we are like babies on milk, we do not have the ability to discern. Okay, like my worship leader couldn't discern himself out of a shoebox because he was a gifted man, but in Christ he was just a baby that we were trying to raise up. If you've grown beyond that, we still cannot discern unless we practice. The sermon is practiced, okay? I'd like to challenge you to ask whether you are practicing discernment. Sean, do you practice discernment? We don't, none of us do it always. I think we are just creatures of comfort, and it takes effort to discern. You've got to have your antennas up. You've got to be focused. You've got to draw a lot of energy spiritually to sense what's happening around you. But I don't think you can be an effective, efficient leader in the church unless you practice discernment. Okay? It's also good to know that when you're part of a panel of leaders, that the brethren and the sisterin is that a good word? that some of us are actually functioning in this dimension of grace in this gathering so that someone can just relax or whatever, you know, if you work as a team. But when you work as a one-man team, you have to be on the ball all the time. All right. Laura, how's your discernment? But did you communicate that? I, I wanted to communicate it, but I didn't know if anybody said okay. it. And then what happened is I looked and I was praying up there and eventually they picked up something went wrong. Yeah. And then I said you didn't show me to show it. Mm. So if God wants to take it, let you know it. I know it's an anxiety to express it with your hands. Mm. And after the distance with the person came here, they were feeling but It's not always convenient to speak up in a setting like that, but it's just to test what is happening, where the meeting is going. You know. your opinion. It's valid. <laughs> All right. Gwen, how's your discernment doing? 
Yeah. But you you do have a, an, an awareness of. Okay, you're practicing with your husband. Okay. And you have you come to a place where your discernment has become almost similar, or you still. Okay. After 30 years of marriage, I can't say my discernment with my wife is the same. You know, there are times when we are on different pages altogether. And I, I just have to sign a peace treaty in that. <laughs> because to do what I know is good. Uh, but it's because at times we have different perspectives on certain things of the word. Uh, but I must say over the years... Um, we have come out into the same pattern more often than perhaps in the past. Yeah. Brother Dandy? Ministry. You can you can use that. Um, that could be an element of discernment. Uh, it's also the gift of observation, <laughs> discerning where where the meeting is going. I have to do that a lot um, because in many cases I'm a guest speaker in a church environment, and at times what I have to say is radically different than what has happened in the meeting up till that moment. So I try and try and find a bridge between what has already been done and what still needs to be done so that I have to walk over this bridge to where I need to go. So I find something to complement in what has already been done. I find someone to celebrate in what has already been done because I've got to get the people to, to believe that I'm sincere in what I'm about to share. If I just bring out my double-barrel guns and begin to shoot, you know, people draw back within themselves, and you struggle for the rest of the meeting, even though the things you are saying are valid and true, they're not buying because they feel that you are on the attack. You know? So, yeah, it's good to find something that's already established in the meeting and build in that. Um, something you may want to learn uh, or do if you're not already doing it is I always look around me to find something that I can complement the leadership of the house for what they've already accomplished. Because I do believe it's, it's needful to celebrate people in their pursuance of Christ, in their love for Him, in the work that they're seeking to do. Um, I also believe people respond warmly when you celebrate their leaders. Okay, so it's a good thing to learn as, as a mat.
of the kingdom to find something that you can celebrate. You know, let's say they've um, renovated a part of the building or they've put down paving or, you know, the, the um, ushers have a certain outfit or something. Find something that you can see has taken a lot of planning and effort from the leaders to bring about and celebrate it publicly. And in doing so, um, the congregation will eat from your hand and uh, you can share the word of the Lord. Even when it's hard and difficult, they will still believe in you. Because you know? they know that you are sincere. I practice some discernment and I walk into situation, as I said, I put up my spiritual antenna. When I listen to a sermon, I don't only listen to the words, I listen to the spirit that carries the words. And when I discern the spirit, either I will remain in the meeting or I will become absent even though my body is in the chair. I decide I can't receive ministry from this individual. I would open my Bible, begin to read, you know, do something. I don't want to insult them. I don't want to draw attention to myself by leaving the meeting. So I'll endure the whole process, um, but I'm not with it because my spirit refuses to receive from what is happening. Okay, because sometimes someone could be ministering a legalistic word or a biblically inaccurate word or something that is completely against the agenda of God, but they're enthusiastic about what they're doing. I will hear them out, but I'm not buying today. It's, it's something you have to practice yourself in. comes by practice. If you just walk around carelessly and casually, you will not have the ability to discern. I believe we need to practice discernment in every situation, okay? Not just in church. You need discernment throughout your day. You step into a business or you step into a place where you have to purchase services or whatever, ask yourself, what spirit is in operation here at the moment? When I go travel overseas or even... Um, regionally or whatever, I stand, I come into the airport area, I stand over here, the check-in counters is there. I pray, I said, Holy Spirit, which of these people have you prepared to serve me? You know, I don't want to go to the wrong person. They're not going to give me my upgrade. They're not going to give you my seat that I want. They're going to irritate and frustrate me. They're going to charge me for my overweight baggage. You know? So I stand there for a while, maybe two or three minutes. I just pray. I said, which one? Then he'll show me something on their facial expressions, how kind they are with other passengers, something they're doing. I said, all right, that's the one. But there's a long line. Well, I'm standing in that long line because that's the person who's going to serve me. Then the person who who orchestrate, says, you can go over there. I said, no, no, I need to see this person. It's the person behind me. Go ahead. We'll help you over there. You know? You've got to practice discernment in what you're doing 
Sometimes you go into a restaurant and they you know, allocate you a seat or a chair, I mean a table somewhere, and you sense that the waiter or the waitress is going to serve you really don't connect with you in terms of the quality of the service they're going to give you. Um, I just, I'm very bold. I say to the person, I said, uh, who's in charge here today? They say, right one of them, can you come here? Yes. I said, can you assign me another waiter? Why? I said, I no need to discuss it. Something happened in the process of the introduction, the connection, the communication, that tells me the person is disrespectful towards me. I won't let them serve me and tip them at the end. I just ask for another person. Or, I said, where do I have to sit to be served by that person? I'll just do that. I'm not offending anybody. I'm buying service. I just do that. That's <laughs> just the way I am. My family know. We've been, we've been eating out in restaurants. In fact, it's our family sport. <laughs> eating out. You know? And so they know. As I sit down, I don't even have to do it today. My middle daughter is very sharp. We sit down. And she would say, Dad, wrong table. I said, what, what's wrong today? This, that. I said, you're right. What shall we do? How shall we solve it? He says, leave it to me. Uh, I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> you know. The youngest one, of course, wants to make everybody happy, and so she's still too immature to live above this. And the oldest one always wants to be at peace with everybody. So, but the middle one is on the money. You know. <laughs> Just straight. As straight as an arrow. I have to sometimes help her. So discernment is very important. Do you agree with me? It's very important in what we're doing. It should be a regular part of our spiritual life as, uh, of, as prayer, otherwise we're going to be in trouble. Practicing discernment. Now, as you practice discernment, don't distrust your own judgment all the time. Because you can get it wrong. Test your discernment with other leaders. That's why I say that meeting after the gathering of the saints, when you're sipping tea, it's very important. It's very vital to ask, what do you think the Lord wanted to accomplish this morning? Did we accomplish it? What was the interference? How do we remedy that in the future? You know, do you sense the Holy Spirit wanted to insert a word of prophecy at a certain time of the gathering? What happened? Why didn't it take place? You know? So in the process, we learn to trust one another. We sense that the same Holy Spirit is helping us to discern. We have the same word that we're using to reach the outcome. And we grow in the whole, in the whole thing together. And uh, it's a wonderful thing when that happens. All right, let's, uh, I think this is where we break for a cup of tea or coffee or whatever else we're breaking for.